did Shakespeare say? We few, we faithful few. Well, again, uh, my name is uh, Rankin Wilburn. Uh, My family and I moved to Evansville uh, this summer to support our aunt and uncle, Paul and Sally Klenkinect, who are members of this community, usually sit right there. And uh, while we're here, it's a privilege to support this uh, wonderful church. I want to say a word about sabbaticals, since you heard last Sunday that your pastor is taking one. Uh, Sabbaticals in a church are different from an academic context in that they're not intended uh, for extended study and writing. In the Bible, a sabbatical is a period of intentional rest. And if that sounds like a paradox, it is, because... You know, it it can be hard to be still. It can be hard to let the waters of your of your the waters of your heart be still enough for the silt to settle to the bottom, and for you to finally see. A a typical ministry sabbatical is uh, three months for every uh, seven years of service. It's a gift uh, for uh, a pastor given to him by his church. And some of you may be wondering, well, I wish my job had a sabbatical. Shouldn't every job have a sabbatical? Well, perhaps. But you know that uh, Jeff Kincaid has uh, been running very hard over these last seven years. From my perspective, he has uh, carries a very unusually high counseling load. He loves the people of this church. And for City's best days to be ahead of you, uh, he and Amy need a rest. So let me, before we turn to our study this morning, let me pray for Jeff and Amy and their boys. Lord, thank you for calling Jeff and Amy Kincaid to Evansville for your purposes, for this extraordinary church that you've gathered. And I pray for City Church that this will be a a season of deepening trust. We pray for Jeff and Amy and their boys that this will be a rich season of rest and healing and renewed passion for them. And we ask that you train our pastor's heart to rest in you so he can come back and comfort us with the comfort he himself has received. And now, Lord, through these words, would you strike a straight blow with a crooked stick? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you just saw, we're going to be starting a new series for these 10 weeks. And for the first five weeks, we're just going to be looking at Five prophets, five ancient words from God that we need to hear afresh today. I'll save introducing the series proper for next week, and today I just want to jump right in with the story of Jonah. For I believe from this old preacher's failures, we can learn what we need to deal with our anger today and banish our fears. You probably know the story of Jonah. It's one of the most uh, well-known stories in the Bible that almost everyone has heard. A man called by God to go and preach to a distant land, but he runs away. He runs from God's call. He stows aboard on a ship. He's cast overboard in a storm. He's swallowed by a large fish, spends three days in the belly of that fish, and is spewed up on shore where he walks into the middle of the largest, most powerful city in the world at that time. That was Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. 
He preaches a five-word sermon, and the most shocking detail of this story is the city doesn't laugh at Jonah. Instead, they listen. They listen, and they turn from their evil ways. And that's the story, but it's not the end of the story or even the point of the story, for the book of Jonah isn't so much about what happens to the Ninevites as it is about what happens to Jonah. Let's look at the fourth chapter of Jonah together. It's one of the most bizarre and beautiful chapters in the Bible. And it's bizarre because Jonah has just led the most successful revival in human history. I mean, he has preached one brief sermon and the whole city turns to God. As a prophet, this should have been the happiest day of Jonah's life. Instead, let's listen to Jonah chapter 4 together. It's God's word for us today. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of this plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Do you know Jonah's the only book of the Bible that ends with a question? And I'd like us to ask a couple of questions of this story this morning. What is Jonah's sickness? He's suffering from a deep sickness. What is Jonah's sickness? And along the way, we'll look at what is the remedy that God provides? How does God care for Jonah and heal him? What is the nature of Jonah's sickness? We know from verse 1, he's angry. The word anger occurs six times in this brief chapter. There's a lot of anger in Jonah, and we know there's a lot of anger in our nation right now. See the overnight headlines. And we know that Jonah is depressed, and we know he's severely depressed because three times in this brief chapter, Jonah says he wishes he were dead. Verse 3, for it is better for me to die to live. You know, a lot of people are surprised to find out that there are many times in the Bible where God's messengers say, you know, I wish I were dead. Jonah's not the only one. He's severely depressed. 
And we know that Jonah's emotionally unstable. He's prone to massive mood swings. Uh, Notice the adverbs uh, for any of you English teachers out there. One moment he is exceedingly displeased, verse 1. But then the next moment, verse 6, when a shade comes up over his head, the writer describes him as exceedingly glad. And the writer's trying to make the point that this is a very unstable man, emotionally unbalanced. And I want to ask you, do you recognize Jonah? He's angry. He's depressed. And he's unstable. I mentioned uh, earlier there's a lot of anger in our nation right now. I'll tell you a secret. Sometimes the angriest people are the ones who don't know they're angry. Are the ones that when you press on them a little bit and say, hey, I'm not angry. There's a lot of anger out there. And And there's a lot of depression too, isn't there? And we're facing a global pandemic right now, but depression remains the global health crisis. For every uh, thousand that COVID will take, depression claims it's tens of thousands. And of course, we know more than a few of us are emotionally unstable. But those are merely symptoms. Those are not the disease. What is Jonah's real sickness? On the surface, it appears to be racism. I mean, that's why he runs from Nineveh. You want me to go where? I'm not going to Nineveh. See, Jonah was a Jew, and the Jews loathed the Ninevites, and with cause. The Ninevites, the nation of Assyria, these represented a clear and present danger to Israel. Assyria was the greatest empire in the world at that time, and the Assyrians were known for their brutal tactics in warfare. They would stack their enemies' corpses like firewood. These were brutal, brutal warriors. Assyria was a clear and present danger danger to the national security of Israel. And this is where God tells Jonah to go. Go and warn these people. Go and tell these people. And why does Jonah run from this assignment? He tells us with shocking candor in verse 2. He says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee from Tar- to Tarshish, for I knew, I knew that you were a gracious God, merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I know what you're like, God. You are so promiscuous with your love. You're so abounding with your mercy that I'm afraid you might even spare the Ninevites and I don't want you to spare them. These are our enemies. I want you to punish them. We, Lord, are your treasured possession. You love us. How could you love them? You might have mercy on them and I don't want you to have mercy on them. I want you to crush them, those people, the Ninevites. Now, we have a word for that today. When you look down on a whole group of people and see them as inferior, that's racism. And Jonah is a racist, and racism is a deep problem that remains with us. But grave though it is, I'd like to suggest not even racism is Jonah's core problem, and I dare to suggest it's not ours either, but is itself a symptom of an even deeper disease. Now, why would I say that? The text gives it away. Because racism at its most extreme might lead you to want to take the life of another, but that's not what Jonah says. He doesn't say, therefore, now take their life. He says, now take my life. It is better for me to die than to live. See, racism explains Jonah's 
why he's angry, but not why he's angry enough to die. And I think that phrase, that odd phrase, gives us a clue. See, if you wish to die, if you wish to die, if you wish no longer to live, what does that mean? Well, it means you've lost your reason for living. It means your life has lost its meaning. But I want you to please notice to whom Jonah is speaking. Verse 3, therefore now, O Lord, I have lost my reason for living. See, he's talking to God. One writer puts it, Jonah is talking to the only reason you and I have to live, and he's telling God, I have no reason to live. He's talking to the one who created us to discover our meaning in him and telling him life has no meaning. Now, there can only be one explanation for this. Something else besides God was giving Jonah his reason for living. Something else besides God gives Jonah his meaning for his life. And the Bible has a term for this something else. When something else besides God gives you your significance, your security, your peace of mind. The word for that is an idol. In the Bible, an idol is not a statue that we worship. An idol, Jack Miller puts it, is that which you believe you need more than God or in addition to God to give you security, to give you comfort, to give you peace. That is this preacher's real disease. It's idolatry. He has a divided heart. What are Jonah's idols? Well, his race. You know, I'm a Jew. I'm not a Ninevite. I'm not like those people. His race is one of his idols, just as it is for some today. His religion. I, I'm, I'm a good moral person. I'm not like those Ninevites. I don't, do, I don't do what they do. And like a lot of men, like me, one of Jonah's idols is his work. His work. He makes an idol out of his work. And we know that because as a prophet, this should have been the happiest day of, of, of Jonah's life. But look how his work has turned out for him. I mean, he, he wanted to be in Tarshish by now. But instead, he finds himself in Nineveh. And he's so angry his life has turned out this way. And please notice, it's not that Jonah is an unbeliever. The Ninevites are the unbelievers. Jonah is a very religious man. He knows God. He prays to God. And the story shows us that you can know what God is like. You can have the right words. You can even speak for God and still not be living for God. And Jonah didn't see it. See, as long as the God he confessed endorsed his expectations, he was okay. He was okay. But when the true God collided with Jonah's real God, what he was really living for, something else. All oh, the anger came out of his heart. The judgmentalism was exposed, even as racism. And I want to linger over this because all the pundits are asking, what does our nation need right now? And books on racism top the bestseller charts, and racism is a major problem. And we all know COVID cases are on the rise around the globe. But there is a disease even more pervasive, and it's so common that we've stopped worrying about it. And that's what makes it so lethal. You'll find it everywhere. A mask will not protect you. The church is no sanctuary. Actually, it is even more prevalent among the religious. 
and that is idolatry. Idolatry. See, the question is not, do you have idols? You do. The question is, do you know what those idols are, and do you hate them? Do you see that your idols, the idols of your heart, do you see that they are robbing you? They are robbing you of the joy and peace you're looking for. To me, that's one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be ours. You ever notice that verse? It's one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible. Those who cling, and we do cling, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be ours. You know what that verse is? That's from Jonah, chapter 2, verse 8. See, Jonah gave the message, and he still missed the point of it. How might you and I begin to identify what our idols are? Well, notice what God does with Jonah. He doesn't scold him. He does what a good counselor might do today. He asks questions of Jonah. That's what a good counselor does. He asks you questions. Look in verse 4. He says, do you do well to be angry? If you want to know what your idols are, one of the best places to look is underneath your anger. Commenting on this story, Eugene Peterson said, anger is a most useful diagnostic tool. So instead of shaming yourself for getting angry or denying that you are, admit this anger in your heart, this simmering rage perhaps, and look underneath your anger. And most often the reason you're angry is because one of your idols has failed you. Most often you're angry because one of your idols has failed you. I'll give you a trivial example. Why do people lose their temper in traffic? Maybe because you're idol of control. You have to be in control. But somebody dared to take that away from you. So you hit that horn. Jonah was angry because his idols of race, religion, his morality, his work were threatened. These were threatened by God's grace. And it's the same thing with me. It's so easy to carry around Christianity in my head to have the right answers. But most often, as with Jonah, the way you and I learn that we're really living for something else to comfort our hearts is when our comfort gets taken away. Our faith is often just in our heads until the bottom falls out of our lives. Take heart, that's one of the ways you actually know you're growing, you're growing in faith. Is when you think, okay, I've got this, I'm grounded. Watch out because you're most likely standing on a false floor. That's what happened to Jonah. Look at the text. Notice in verse 5. Notice what Jonah does in his discomfort. It's the same thing you and I do. He built a shade for himself. He tried to manufacture his own peace. That's the same thing we do every day. Then in verse 6, it says, God appointed, it's a key word in this story, appointed, God appointed a tall leafy plant to support him. And Jonah's like, thank God for his blessings. Thank God for this tall leafy plant. Until verse 7, his comfort is taken away. For that same God who gave that tall leafy plant, quote, appointed a worm that attacked the plant. Ah! Then God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Now, do you notice the same dynamic in your life? 
on top of everything else that's happening in the world, you have your own challenges, and you might call out, God, why is this happening to me? Well, God has appointed these trials in your life to expose your divided heart, to expose that you're trusting in something else to give you the peace and joy that only the love of God can give you. And Jonah was so angry. Why are you doing this to me? But what was God doing? God was taking away Jonah's comfort, not to hurt him, but to heal him. It's the same with you. God is not punishing you. He's caring for you. He's healing you. He's setting you free. One of my favorite quotes is from uh, the, the old hymn writer, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote these words. This is the way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and strength. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free, to break your schemes of earthly joy that you might find your all in me. That's how God is answering your prayer. He's breaking your schemes of earthly joy that, will, that we're never going to deliver you. We're never going to give you what you were hoping they might, that you might find your all in him. And this is Jonah. You know what a remedial course is? It's when you have to retake a course you've already taken because you never learned the concepts. You never internalized the lesson. Even if you have the right answers, you never internalized the lesson, so you have to take a remedial course. Well, Jonah needed a remedial course in the grace of God. And I wonder, how about you and me? I learned in the middle of my ministry that I was talking about things to thousands of people the grace of God that I did not understand myself. And you say, how embarrassing, how ridiculous. And it is embarrassing. But one ancient commentator uh, says of Jonah, doesn't Jonah come off looking embarrassing and ridiculous in this story? I mean, he gives this, I hate the love of God speech for other people. <laughs> but then, are we so different? Is it possible that you and I need a remedial course on the grace of God? Well, let me give you two tests. Here are two tests that you might need a remedial course yourself. How do you feel about the Ninevites in your life? We all have Ninevites. See, it's easy to live in the abstract. I'm not only talking about the people who are different from you. No one wants to admit he or she's a racist. I'm not just talking about people who are different from you. I'm talking about people who have mistreated you. I'm talking about people that you have reason to be upset with, who have hurt you and those you care about. Those were the Ninevites. They were Jonah's enemies. When God asked Jonah in verse four, do you do well to be angry? He was asking Jonah, do you deserve, Jonah, do you deserve to be so angry that I am so good? Now think about that. What is the only explanation for why Jonah could be so angry? What is the only explanation for why Jonah could resent God's goodness, God's grace to these people? I know what you're like, God, a gracious and merciful God, and I don't want you to be merciful to those Ninevites. 
I mean, the only way Jonah could resent God's grace to the Ninevites is if Jonah somehow believed he was more deserving of that grace himself because he compared himself to the Ninevites. And please notice, he had reason to look down on them. He had cause. He thought, I'm not like them. These are violent, cruel, unjust, pagan people. Jonah compared himself and he felt he was more deserving of God's mercy. And please notice, this was a temptation for him precisely because he was religious. It always is curious to me that uh, children's stories, everyone seems to love the book of Jonah. But I think if you read it closely, Jonah is one of the most painful stories in the Bible. Because for church people, it exposes the Jonah in our hearts. We so easily start thinking that we're a little more deserving of God's grace. And you know where it comes out? It comes out in our judgmental hearts, especially with the Ninevites in our lives. And we all have them, especially with our impatience, with people you have difficulty forgiving, especially with the failures of others. We rush to judgment We have so little grace for others, even as we sing of God's grace for ourselves. And the test will always come. The test will always come for you with that one person you have the most difficulty forgiving. You have such difficulty extending grace to them. They they, they were blind and they hurt you so much. But if you don't see yourself in exactly the same boat as an undeserving recipient of God's grace, well, you need to take a remedial course. Because not only will you turn to something else, we'll use almost anything else to justify our lives before others. We'll use racism. We'll even use moral indignation against racism. But both of these are symptoms of an even deeper disease afflicting us both. So that's one test that you need a remedial course is is how you treat the Ninevites, them, how you treat them. But a second test is do you care about this city where you live? Do you care about this city where you live? See, what did Jonah do? He did what most churches in most cities do. He withdrew. He formed an enclave and he criticized it from without. And that's what a lot of churches do. We withdraw, we huddle up, narrowly focused on our own comforts. So what does God do? He gives Jonah an object lesson. He causes a plant to grow up and then he takes it away. Jonah gets angry and God says to Jonah in verse nine, do you do well to be angry for this plant? You see the, he's asking him questions, but you see the logic, don't you? It's relentless. Jonah, you care about a shrub, that I caused to come up in a night, that I gave you. You care about a shrub. Should I not care about this great city? Jonah 4 is one of the great mission texts of the whole Bible because Nineveh, I don't even know if we have a city like Nineveh today. The closest parallel may be Amsterdam. But Nineveh is this big, violent, unjust pagan city. And God has not only not given up on it, but God's heart is filled with compassion for the Ninevites. So he says in verse 11, should I not pity that great city 
in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left. That's a figurative way of saying it's filled with people who are without direction. They're utterly lost. They're blind. And I care about their welfare so deeply. Do you care about them, Jonah? Do you pity that great city? And then you chuckle because the book ends, and also much cattle, and also much cattle. (laughs) Now, does that mean that God is an animal lover? Of course God is an animal lover. Look how many different animals he created. But cattle, because this is an agrarian economy, it's a way of saying that God cares about the whole city, its economics, its social fabric. And the Lord is asking Jonah, and today he's asking us, do you care more about your own comforts? Do you care more than your own comforts about the lost and the poor and the marginalized of your own city? Do you care about the lost and the poor of this city? If not, then you too need a remedial course on God's grace because you've forgotten everything that you have you are given by God, even the ability to work hard. Well, I spent most of my time this morning on this deadly disease of idolatry and how God breaks our schemes of earthly joy, forfeiting the love that we truly need to set us free. You might wonder, where will healing come from? Well, as with Jonah, you can wait for the scorching trials that are sure to come into your life, but there is something you and I can do today with Jonah's story. That you can read this story and you can confess, confess and confess your constant, daily, desperate need of the grace of God. Your constant, daily, desperate need of the grace of God. So you're never more in danger than when you think you've got your hands around it. The gospel of grace. Those are the people who scare me, who think they've got it. You're in such danger. You're standing on a false floor. I mean, if you're not a Christian, I hope you love this story of Jonah. I hope you love it because it says that God looks at this vast city of people who don't know their right hand from their left, the Bible says, and it says that God's heart for the Ninevites is not one of judgment. It's one of great compassion. It's while they're in this condition. While they're yet hostile to God, the Lord has compassion on them. And in the New Testament, Jesus tells us that this is God's heart, that God loves lost things. He loves lost sheep. He loves lost coins. And he loves lost people. And we can accept God's love, accept God's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But if you confess to be a Christian, this, ought to be one of, this story ought to be incredibly humbling for you because this remedial course comes to the one who has all the right words, but he never internalized the lesson. And I dare say that's one of the ways you know that you're growing in the gospel is that you're increasingly crushed by how little you understand it. Some of you don't even understand that sentence. I'll I'll say it one more time. You know you're growing in the gospel when you're increasingly crushed by how little you understand it. That's a sign that you're growing. As, As you start asking yourself, will I ever understand this?
Because I can tell you from personal experience, it takes a lot of sermons and a whole lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious. That's hard for me too. Jonah said he knew what God was like. I know what you're like, but he didn't know. See, as long as he thought he was more deserving. And the, and the book ends with the cliffhanger. Will the preacher ever understand? I said this was the only book of the Bible that ends with a question. And the readers left wondering, did Jonah ever get this? Did Jonah ever learn? Well, think about this. How would we ever get the story of Jonah in the first place? I mean, who could have known all these personal, intimate details? I mean, where could we discover that Jonah was such a blind, racist fool who had experienced grace himself but refused to give that very grace to the Ninevites? How do we even have this story? Well, Jonah himself tells us. The mere fact that this story exists is proof that Jonah finally internalized the grace of God, which before he'd only talked about. But that grace finally went from his head and it touched his heart. And the preacher is able to say, God, I spoke of you. I thought I knew what you were like, but I didn't really love you. I did not really love you. Something else was my real reason for living. And the proof came out that I was so angry and judgmental. But now I'm free. And we know that Jonah is free because he's free to confess that he was a blind, racist fool. He is free to look like a fool for all eternity and tell his story so as to help others. And that's the proof that you've internalized the grace of God, is that you can tell your story in such a way as to help others. You can admit your blind folly before the world. I was the one who didn't understand. But now I know what you're like. Lord, you are gracious and you are merciful. You are abounding in love to someone like me. Oh, and when that penny drops, when that penny drops, you begin to extend grace to the Ninevites in your life. That's what heals a human heart when you're allowed to see to the bottom of your own, but then to encounter the grace of God. That's what we need in such a time as this. Well, we've been talking a lot this morning about the real disease. I want to close with a brief story told by Dr. Richard Seltzer in his book, Mortal Lessons. Dr. Seltzer writes, I stand by the bed where a young woman lies, her face, her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in a, palsy, in a palsy clownish. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. The surgeon had followed with religious fervor the curve of her flesh, I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumor in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed, and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me in private. Who are they, I ask myself, and this wry mouth I have made, who gaze at each other and touch each other so generously and greedily? The young woman speaks, Will my mouth always be like this, she asks. Yes, I say because the nerve was cut. She nods and is silent. 
But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in an encounter with the God. Unmindful, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I am so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate to hers, to show her their kiss still works. When Jonah finally touched his heart, when God kissed his scar, Jonah wrote his story. And here's our story. Jonah went outside the city to condemn it, but one greater than Jonah was compelled outside the city not to condemn it, but to save it. And on the cross of Jesus Christ, God bent down and he kissed our crooked lives. His son was twisted in the shape of our twisted hearts to show us nothing else is better than my love. Oh, why would we cling to our worthless idols when such love could be, could be ours? Oh, let me pray for us. Lord, please deliver us because we're going to hear this sermon as we've heard hundreds of more and we'll return. We'll return to our idols. We'll cling to them and ask of them to give us what only you can. Lord, we have just sung, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Lord, help us to live for your praise alone and know that we have in Jesus Christ your smile upon our lives. Lord, help us walk in that. Amen.